1: Welcome back to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined by my friend and co-host and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Dan, how you holding up?
0: I'm OK, and I'm going to give you five seconds to talk about the Dodgers.
1: Dodgers. There it is. I'm
0: done. Excellent. Well, let's get into headline. It's been a crazy week, right? <sighs> well, I do feel like we are definitely getting back into the regular swing of things, news-wise, which is probably just as well.
1: (laughs) Leading off, it's been a busy week at Showtime, which has dropped its planned limited series, The President is Missing, in part because of the pandemic. The cabler has also renewed Black Monday for a third season and ordered new comedy series, Flatbush Misdemeanors. And for more on Showtime's big week, stay tuned for an exclusive interview.
0: That would be later in this podcast. So basically what she's saying is, Keep listening. It's a good one. (laughs) Over at HBO Max, Casey Bloys is refocusing his newly inherited streamer and has dropped the Grease prequel Rydell High, which subsequently moved to Paramount Plus, where it is being reimagined. In other HBO Max news, Americana, the highly anticipated limited series starring Lupita Nyong'o, has been axed after the actress encountered a scheduling conflict.
1: Yeah, as I understand it, this was not something... Um, that was going to be rescheduled on her calendar. So for our listeners who tweeted at us and sent us emails, Alan Seppenwald, this one's for you. Yeah, it's not going to get it's just not going to happen. The show is is unfortunately dead.
0: It's too bad. It's a it's a really good book. And it's a book that covers terrain that literally no other show on television is covering. So I would I would love even if it's not with Lupita Nyong'o, I would love for them to find a way to get that back into motion in some other capacity because it's it's a good book anyway
1: yeah elsewhere tbs has picked up tracy morgan comedy the last og for a fourth season with its count them, fourth showrunner and is losing star tiffany haddish who is departing after three
0: seasons at amazon the streamer is rebooting or remaking or readapting i know what you did last summer as a ya horror drama which i guess it kind of always was
1: Um, Over at Fox, the network announced that the upcoming ninth season of Tim Allen's former ABC comedy Last Man Standing will be its last.
0: L.A.'s Finest has been canceled after two seasons on Spectrum, where it served as the cable provider's first scripted original.
1: On the development front, and this is a fun one, NBC is prepping a modern update of Fried Green Tomatoes starring Reba McIntyre, and from executive producer Norman Lear. Where do I sign?
0: Seriously, so much news this week in pandemic related casting changes. Joshua Jackson has replaced Jamie Dornan in Peacock's Dr. Death. The latter actor dropped out due to, once again, scheduling conflicts.
1: You know, and, and this is a case where the show does go on because they can recast the actor and versus Americana, which has long been a passion project for Lupita and is just not happening because she dropped out.
0: And in other casting news, Susan Sarandon will top line HBO Max's John Wells thriller Red Bird Lane.
1: Wrapping up headlines on the overall deal front, Michael Green has inked a pact with Netflix and set up an animated series at the streamer as his first show. Well, with all that out of the way, it's been a crazy week. Let's dive into this week's top five.
2: Number one.
1: Leading off, NBC News has found itself in the middle of a firestorm this week when it scheduled a Thursday town hall with President Trump at the exact same time as a similar event at ABC with Joe Biden.
0: And we have to acknowledge, of course, that we are recording this on midday Thursday, but it will go up on Friday morning. So whatever comes of this shit show, it will have already happened by the time you listen. On the other hand, there is no question that this is the biggest piece of TV news of the week.
1: Yes and as we record this it's midday Thursday NBC News Group Chairman Cesar Conde has defended the scheduling and said that though they shared in the frustration of the scheduling the decision was mo- motivated quote only by fairness not business considerations.
0: Bull crap, bull crap, bull crap. Allegedly. Sorry. I uh, yeah, I I really the 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 statement that Cesar Conde put out was ridiculous. The idea that because Joe Biden did An eight PM town hall on NBC. They have to give Donald Trump the same hour time slot, even though Joe Biden's original thing was eight o'clock on a Monday, which has entirely different hut levels, as we say. Hut levels
1: being Homes utilizing television. It's just kids.
0: all I'm saying is 8 p.m. on Monday is not the same as 8 p.m. on Thursday. 8 p.m. Monday is not the same on 8 p.m. Thursday, directly opposite a previously announced town hall by the other presidential candidate. Honestly, this is just such a pathetic embarrassment for NBC. And it is one that They can't justify there is no statement that justifies it. They are making the American people dumber by a making them choose to watch one or the other of these two things or neither. I mean, let's be honest. Once again, 95 percent of the voters are well and truly decided as rational people should be. But even still, if you believe that this is a function of attempting to make democracy work properly, this is the wrong freaking way to do it. It is so stupid. And on top of all of the other embarrassing things about NBC's commingled relationship with Donald Trump, and it's here that I should definitely plug the terrific story that you and our colleague and podcast guest uh, Kim Masters did about how NBC kept Donald Trump on board The Apprentice and the various different icky things that were happening there. It's a great story available to read online. This is this is just so stupid and makes NBC look so stupid. And guess what? You'll be shocked to know the talent involved with NBC. Not happy.
1: Yeah, that brings us to the next point here. A group of more than 100 TV showrunners and actors and producers have all united to sign a petition that was sent to Condé, NBCU chairman Jeff Shell, and Comcast CEO Brian Roberts that was protesting the scheduling conflict with Biden's ABC town hall. The list does include... Several heavyweights, including Greg Berlanti and Ryan Murphy and J.J. Abrams, but to me the biggest piece is the the NBC people: Mariska Hargitay, Chris Maloney, uh, the showrunner Warren Light from Law and Order SVU. This Is Us creator Dan Fogelman. Of course, that show is owned by by Disney. But then you've got the stars of This Is Us also signing, and then you know, last but certainly not least, Seth MacFarlane, who in January signed his own two hundred million dollar overall deal with NBC Universal. And you know, MacFarlane left. 20th Century Fox when it was owned by Fox because he didn't want to be associated with the same company that owned Fox News. And look where he is now, which is obviously the least important bit of the story, but interesting nonetheless.
0: And the thing is, this is not about NBC giving Donald Trump time, whatever ABC is giving Joe Biden time. So that's fine. It is what it is. This is about the fact that they are putting it on opposite Joe Biden in a time slot that was about a debate that basically Trump wriggled out of.
1: And if you want to talk about equal time, the Trump event is scheduled for an hour and Biden's event at ABC is 90 minutes. So, I mean, come on.
0: It's it's so stupid and all it does. And the NBC brass know this as well. And they're just going to take advantage of it. All it does is set Donald Trump up for a ratings win, hypothetically, that he's going to make a big deal about on Twitter as if it makes an iota of difference. And NBC will just sit there stewing in the ugliness of it, taking advantage of whatever ratings they can get out of this rather than attempting to do something that allowed the voters to become more informed in this situation. They are making the audience Dumber, And heaven knows, and I've already said this, the first debate did a pretty damn good job of that already. Th- this is this is just so unnecessary. That's the thing. It's unnecessary. They could have said 90 Biden's taking the first 90 minutes. You can take the next 90 minutes of, of primetime that way. You know, we're splitting up the time. Everyone who wants to can watch three hours of horrible town halls tonight, whatever. It's just so Stupid. Um, do you have anything you want to say about your very, very fun article with Kim Masters? Because it's a it's a really good article that that captures a lot of the pettiness of the relationship that has existed for a long time between Donald Trump and NBC.
1: Yeah, it's basically a look at how NBC built up Trump's credibility. Um, and Kim Masters did an incredible job with this. and And I, of course, contributed some reporting here. But, you know, this is, you know, NBC has a long history with Trump. The network curated his image. They, they made him out to be the savvy billionaire on The Apprentice and then Celebrity Apprentice because Kevin Riley originally canceled The Apprentice and Ben Silverman, when he took over NBC after Riley was pushed out, revived it as Celebrity Apprentice and expanded it to two hours. And Trump wanted it to be 90 percent boardroom. And it was just, you know, both of those shows really boosted his profile and prepared voters to believe that Trump was a capable businessman. and. You know, the story this week also reveals that in in 2011, former then NBC Universal CEO Steve Burke convinced Trump to not run to not run in the 2012 campaign by making a $500,000 donation to the Trump foundation. And of course the foundation was dissolved last year after the New York attorney general ac- ac- uh, alleged a shocking pounder of illegality, which I, which is not a word that I can pronounce. And of course that foundation was dissolved last year because yeah, it was bogus. Allegedly. It's a fantastic read reading cover. Was ba- this was basically the story that, that every reporter was scrambling to write four years ago. And A lot of people wouldn't go on record, but did open up. And we talked to a lot of sources who were with NBC at the time. And yeah, that's I I raised my eyebrows more than one time with some of the stuff that we uh, uncovered in that.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny slash sad, but there were all of those years of press tour where we would ask NBC executives If they had concerns that Donald Trump might run for president and the questions that we asked were never on the basis of are you worried about what will happen to your network if you lose one of your most important assets, they were always about are you going to be embarrassed by the things he's going to do when he runs for president on the assumption it was gonna be like a two month run so goes to show how well, dumb yeah. we all are.
1: <laughs> NBC executives at the, in 2016 and and Trump for you know for his part thought that he would be out of the race by September and able to film the new season of Celebrity Apprentice and have that show back on the air. <sighs> and you know he also pitched doing the show from the Oval Office, which I mean, go read the story. It's just, you know, get your popcorn out or your or your Kleenex however you you feel. So
0: Okay, that is that is enough Trump talk, but We are going to talk a little bit more about NBC. So let's get on to number two. Number two.
1: Yeah. Up next, we've got some executive news. Meredith R., is out as NBC's top alternative exec after THR's investigation that she and former entertainment president Paul Telegde fostered a toxic work culture at the network. The inquiry sprang from a THR report on allegations of homophobic, misogynistic and racist behavior, especially within the network's reality division. That would be the same reality division that, guess what, built Trump up into a quote unquote capable businessman. Sources say the investigator here interviewed more than 60 current and former network employees, and found that both Telegdi and R's behavior was not in line with the standards the company expects, especially from its senior leaders. R will not be replaced, as we've discussed on the show before. NBC Universal is in the midst of a major restructure. Susan Rovner was just brought in from Warner Brothers to oversee all of the entertainment programming. She will have to hire someone to oversee Unscripted, among other things like Scripted and Late Night, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and as for the alternative studio that Meredith once oversaw, that has now been moved from her purview to the, the studio group that is overseen by Perlina Igbakwi, who was just promoted at, to run all of NBC Universal's combined studios. So lots going on there.
0: Are there any updates on what this might mean for NBC's Unscripted Slate and how it will impact our lovely listeners?
1: Well, it means that Susan Rovner is going to be making those decisions from here on out. So she's got a lot of work to do, and she has to. One of the stories that we are waiting to see is who she installs on her executive team. So there have been rumors about, you know, former Fox head of unscripted Mike Darnell, who's been at Warner Brothers running that division over there on, on the unscripted side. Um, there's a couple of other rumors about other names floating around, some internally from NBC Universal. But yeah, it's basically this is a a new way of life for the entire unscripted division. So, you know, there's going to be a major, major, major round of layoffs coming up at NBCU as they merge these departments from just being focused on networks to more focused on genres across the entire portfolio. So an executive in the unscripted department at NBC could find themselves working on unscripted shows at Bravo or Peacock or any one of the other cable networks um uh, within the fold. So there's a lot going on and and it also just means that that some of these shows could get bigger platforms if they decide to to strip them across and air them across multiple platforms at the same time or give them a bigger a bigger launch on Peacock. You're going to see some some musical chairs on that side. But uh yeah, it's a it's a whole new regime over there.
0: And Susan Robner, of course, came to NBC from Warner Brothers Television, and we've talked for several weeks that her exit meant that there was a vacuum at the powerful studio. So this week, they made a big hire. Tell the kids about that.
1: Well, not technically. Um, Channing Dungey, the former ABC Entertainment president um, who departed and went to Netflix as a VP original, has exited the streamer after less than two years. Channing Dungey is expected to fill the void created by Rovner's departure at Warner Brothers. It's, there's still a lot of things that, that have to happen over there for, for that announcement to come in, if you ask me, because you've got Peter Roth, who has been in that position for decades, who has run that studio as, as the chairman over there for a long time. He is, you know, within the industry considered a TV Hall of Famer. He is still in that role. He has, his deal expires next year. So expect, you know, everyone in town is basically saying, is he ready to retire? Is he going to go away? What are they going to do? Because now you need to bring in another exec and Channing is is waiting in the wings. We've heard that she's going there. Warner Brothers has declined comment, you know, and and for Channing's part, you know, she's effectively trading in, working with the likes of Shonda Rhimes and Kenya Barris and the Obamas, all of whom had overall deals at Netflix for the likes of Greg Berlanti and Chuck Laurie at Warner Brothers. So she's going from becoming a buyer to becoming a seller when you work for a studio. So and that is if she gets the job. So lots going on on that front. And again, we'll continue to monitor.
2: Number three.
1: Up third this week, eight years after it wrapped its eight season run, Dexter has been revived at Showtime for a limited series with original star Michael C. Hall and original showrunner Clyde Phillips attached. And speaking of Dexter, we have a special surprise this week in his first interview about the new Dexter series. We are thrilled to welcome showrunner Clyde Phillips to the show, Clyde oversaw the first four seasons of the original and will do the same in the newly revived limited series. Clyde, thank you so much for joining us today.
3: You're welcome, Leslie. I'm delighted to be here.
1: You know, obviously, let's talk about, you know, we got to start with that that open ended lumberjack series finale, which we should note that you had absolutely nothing to do with. (laughs) It left viewers and showtime wanting more. And execs have said in the years that passed that they would never do anything without Michael. So walk us through. How did this come together, considering you you hadn't been with Dexter since season four ended a decade ago?
3: Right. Well, I I left Dexter after four seasons, after the John Lithgow uh, Trinity season, which won all the awards. We won at Peabody and he won a Golden Globe and, and an Emmy. The director won an Emmy. But I live in the East and I was in California and I realized that I was living, I was earning a lifestyle that I wasn't living. Um, I was away from my family and I, I missed my family and, um, left the show on the best of circumstances, tried to get talk. They tried to talk me out of it, um, moved east and made a deal with Lionsgate and ended up, uh, taking over and show running nurse Jackie, which shot in New York. So, uh, that was perfect. Then along the way, and, and then I've done several other series since then, and along, the, along the way, occasionally Michael and I, Michael C. Hall and I would talk or I'd read an article that he said, I'm not ruling it out, and I'd write to him and said, you want to talk about this? And we'd talk about it and really couldn't come up with something. I'd I worked up an idea that he didn't go for. Some other people uh, had done some stuff that either Showtime or Michael didn't go for. And then, um, you know, the, the, there's a saying among people who do what I do, um, which is the phone will ring. And huh. last... July, not the July we just had, but the previous July, July 1st, Gary Levine, the president of Showtime, who's also a, a dear old friend of mine uh, and with whom I've worked for many, many years. I've known him since the day he moved to California. Uh, he's also a cantor in, in a synagogue, and he held my daughter, who's now 23, he held her when she was eight days old for her baby naming ceremony. So uh, we, we go back quite a way, and are good friends. Anyway, so Gary calls... <laughs> He said, I'm in New York, Uh, I want to get together for lunch. And I said, well, I'm on Martha's Vineyard, and Gary, I know you too well. You've got two daughters who both live in New York, and this is a business call. So (laughs) let's just talk about whatever it is you want to talk about. And then he got pretty much to the point. He says, we want to do one more season of Dexter with Michael C. Hall, and we want you to do it. And are you interested? Let me just say that leaving Dexter the first time was the hardest professional decision I ever made. Going back to Dexter this time was the easiest professional decision I'd ever made. My daughter was grown and out of the house, and, uh, or in college, and uh, it, was, um, it, was easy. it was an easy yes. I then had, and this was also during the beginning th- throes of the ATA-WGA struggle, and so nobody had agents. And I had to put together a writing room from Martha's Vineyard, which I did, and I'm, I'm quite proud. i a got, got a very diverse room. Three of the writers were former writing assistants of mine, which you people out there, that's one of the great ways to break into writing is uh, get in the writing room any way you can. And one of them, Scott Reynolds, is my number two. He's an executive producer on the show. Another one, Tony, is, um, Tony Saltzman is supervising producer, and another one was my current writing assistant whom I made a staff writer on the show. And then through and then I hired another friend I'd worked with, and then uh, a friend of Tony's, uh, whose script I read, and then a couple of other people, one referred by my lawyer, and one referred by a manager who heard about this, and I read her script and brought her on board too. And then, so I ended up having nine hires. And um, went back to California and set up offices in the valley. We started breaking the show down, you know, sat in the room with whiteboards and uh, for months and months and months. And then um, COVID came along. And so then we had to go home and work from, you know, and work on Zoom with 11 people on the screen. And one of the things that, that happened was that Scott, my number two, lived near where our offices were. And so since the offices were empty, he went in because it was safe. And so he brought his laptop in and we had the whiteboards. When we could look at them, he would just move his laptop around and we could see it. And we had that advantage over a regular Zoom thing we have to do what are called tiles or little three by five cards. And you're always saying to whoever's controlling the thing, wait a minute, uh, could you go back to this other one, et cetera, et cetera. So Scott was a hero. Yeah, it's
1: it's very small and, and, and hard to read as I understand. And you
3: can't see each other because you need, you need the, uh, the whiteboard the up in front of, front the board, of you. Yeah. yeah. So that's a long way of saying that's how it, that's how this happened.
1: So did you go back to this room and, and launch this room without a concept in mind?
3: Well, when you're doing a, I also write mystery novels and and when you're doing a mystery or something that something like this each season of Dexter we always knew what the last what the last episode would be we were, or, or what it needed to be what needed to transpire so we knew that we knew how the show was going to end and then we do it's called you put your nose against the ending and walk backward and fill it all in until you get to until you get to episode 1 and then you start and then you 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 build your season then you take it and you pitch it to Showtime and to Michael C. Hall and uh, get their notes, incorporate their notes and then start breaking the show down into episodes. And that's what you did here? That, that's what we did in California. And, uh, and then finally, uh, from home, from, from our homes on Zoom. Right. But yeah. the initial breakdown was done in the room um, for a couple of months and then uh, got the approval of Showtime and Michael and uh, incorporated their notes and uh, then started breaking down the individual episodes and assigning them to the writers. I wrote the first and the tenth.
0: Well, now, addressing reactions to the finale as much or as little as you want to, how much is what happened in the finale and really the entire series? How much is that still canon and a starting point? And how much do you get to effectively start from scratch as much as you might want to?
3: Um, We we basically do get to start from scratch. We, we want this to not be Dexter season nine. I mean, 10 years have passed, or however many years have passed by the time this will air, and it, the show will reflect that time passage. Insofar as the ending of the show, this will have no resemblance to, the, to how, the, how the original finale was, and it's a great opportunity to write a second finale for a show, um, and, and Showtime was very gracious about that.
0: How much, in in your mind, was that sort of one of the things that was driving Michael's interest in particular? The idea that maybe the show didn't get exactly the ending that maybe he wanted or the fans wanted, and the chance to maybe do it again and find a different place to leave that character.
3: It's an interesting and complicated question. You know, I, when I talk with Michael, you know, M- Michael has to. If I wear a Dexter hat, the people come up to me and talk about Dexter. All Michael has to do is walk out his door, and people are all over him. And I think that Michael, Michael certainly was aware um, that the uh, ending wasn't well received, and, um, and I believe that he was not completely satisfied with it. And this is an opportunity uh, to make that right. Uh, but that's not why we're doing it. We're doing this because there's such a hunger for Dexter out there. I mean, we blew up the Internet yesterday. When this came out, we trended number two on Twitter Mm -hmm. behind some guy named Joe Biden. So, I mean, there's such a hunger for this. And when when I just surf social media and come across these various sites, people are always saying, when is the show coming back? When is the show coming back?
1: Yeah, I think there were some executives at Showtime who got very, very sick of me asking them at, at various press tours, what's the status of the Dexter revival? And it just, you know, I think over time, obviously, so much other stuff came about that it just never... You kind of lose track of it, you know, and, you, and it comes back when it comes back. But
3: well, while, while doing this, this whole, I mean, this is a little bit of a relief because this has been like a, a secret. We've been working on the secret project with a secret name and in, in, in a you know, dummy production company and all, all of this. And so now it's just great to be able to talk about it.
1: I, I would imagine. So I just want to follow up on something that, that you told Dan, you know, if this is an, an opportunity you know, to, to start from scratch, and obviously we want to be conscientious of, of spoilers because I know you don't want to talk about that. But Jennifer Carpenter's Deb Morgan was killed off in, in the final season. You know, we've seen other reboots kind of undo their, their previous finales, series finales. Is that, you know, something on, that's on the table here? Because to me, one of the things that I loved so much about this show, and this is one of the first shows that I covered for THR in my career, was that relationship between Dexter and his sister,
3: Right. I agree with you, by the way. I, I wrote a lot of Jennifer's stuff and I, and I loved writing her stuff. When the, we're, again, we're 10 years later. We're not undoing anything. We're not doing movie magic. We're not going to betray the audience and say, that was all a dream or whatever it is. I mean, what happened in the first eight years happened in the first eight years. This is now however many years later. So we're not undoing anything.
0: Well, putting put a different way, is it kind of freeing for you guys as writing staff knowing that Dexter is a show that has a well-established ability to bring characters back, however dead they might be in any variety of almost ghostly or conscious style capacities? It gives you flexibility to some degree, I would imagine.
3: Yeah, there is there is some flexibility to to do some movie magic. And uh, that's all I can say about this. That's all I can say about it. I'm, I'm, you guys end up getting no spoilers out of me.
1: No, I don't want spoilers, but I'm going to try one more time. <laughs> I just, just because, you know, you know me, we've done so many interviews, in, you know, uh, over the years about Dexter and some of your other projects and obviously Nurse Jackie, too, which I covered way back when, which also should be rebooted. But um, Jennifer Carpenter, is there an, a way to have her involved in this update in some way or another?
3: Well, my answer to that is I can't answer that. So you can derive what you want from that.
1: Um, well, uh, that usually means yes, um, but I'm not going to put you on the spot any more than I just did, but moving on, you know, you did say, do an interview after the original series finale eight years ago, and you said what your original series finale plan was for the show. Had you been the showrunner at the end of it? And it would have been Dexter was about to be executed for his crimes. And, you know, to use your quote in the gallery are all the people, people that Dexter had killed. How much of that is in play here?
3: Well, again, that would, everybody knows that quote. And then if I say none of it is in play, then they know something else is going to happen. If I say all of it's in play, then then they know that that something's going to happen. So I can't answer that. I can't talk about the finale of the show.
1: I, I just, I mean, to me, I, I had to ask, you know, because it's such, you know, that that would have been an amazing finale versus, I don't. I,
3: well, you know. and, well and, by, and by the way, that <laughs> finale, um, Kristen, I forgot her last name from eon Kristen dos Santos, yes, yeah, called me that day and uh, the, the the day before and promised to embargo it until uh, until afterward and the show evolved into what it was going to evolve into without me, so had I wasn't there, so I had no yeah. um no input on how how the show would end or should end. I only had my own idea about how I would have lobbied to have it end. I don't know that I would have been successful in uh, in getting to that.
1: Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't have created, you know, Dexter Morgan, the new poster child for for bounty paper towels.
3: (laughs) No, I don't think so.
0: (laughs) Well, sort of going along the line of spoilers that maybe or maybe not actually spoilers, what can you tell us about setting? Because Miami was obviously so much a part of where the DNA of that show was to begin with but then we left him in a very very different location so where do you guys want to be situating this character geographically i guess
3: right um again i need to be a little coy but but i will say that it won't be miami
1: interesting
0: now speaking of sort of how dexter as a concept has changed. Have you and Michael discussed kind of what the character represented in 2006 and maybe how he represents something different in 2020, 2021, especially in terms of our shifting relationship with his former employment in law enforcement? Is there a chance to play around with that at all?
3: Yeah. uh, Yes, we've discussed it and we we do mess with it. We do change it up. I can't tell you in which ways. But to, to answer your question, uh, the answer is yes. Uh, it, it will look and feel different, yet familiar. Interesting. I love this about? I feel like I'm running for office here. You know? I, feel, I feel like Amy <laughs> Coney Barrett. You know?
0: <laughs> can, you, can you tell us the, uh, the five parts of the First Amendment or, or not?
3: <laughs> um, I, I, I could, but I don't think I should because I don't think that's an appropriate question. <laughs> Sen- Senator. <laughs> but sort of approaching it from a different angle,
0: more less the show and what it represented and more the character because he was sort of a a very particular type of anti-hero archetype at a time at which television was going in the, you know, Tony Soprano, Don Draper, um, you're naming you naming know, all the shows, lo-
3: you naming all the shows we lost our Emmy's to. <laughs>
0: But but the idea of 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 how he as a character fit into the landscape and whether you feel as if it's kind of whether the landscape has changed and whether Dexter as a person has to change as well.
3: Yes. Well, certainly um, Dexter, the character uh, is has evolved. That doesn't mean that his what we call his dark passenger isn't present within him and always calling out to him. It's what he does with it now that uh, will be. The grist of what of what we're going to do in this uh, last season.
1: So you 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 are now referring to this repeatedly as the last season. You know we've seen so many limited series, the quote unquote limited series wind up being renewed. Obviously, you know, with the expectation that this is going to be a ratings hit for Showtime. Have there been conversations that with Michael and maybe with with Gary Levine at Showtime that there could be another incarnation, whether it's with Michael or not, or as an executive producer or a spinoff? These are the same questions that I feel like I asked asked the showrunners in Showtime eight years ago. Right.
3: We we've speculated and bounced it around. But Showtime is really firm in that this is a limited series and and the end of it in the last season. So
0: when are you going to be able to begin production and what's, you know, what have you been told and what is your understanding about how production is going to be different in our COVID world and all?
3: Well, that's a really good question. We, we've we started, um, prep. I mean, you know, we, we just announced yesterday, but we've been greenlit for two months. And so I've got, uh, Bill Carraro, um, who, who did Lovecraft Country and around in 2049 and, um. Escape at Dannemora. He's my producer, executive producer, and he's starting to put together a crew. We we zoom uh, a couple of times a week. Uh, we've hired a production designer, and in fact, the production designer and Bill. and this, this will lead. This will merge into the other half of your question. The production designer lived in Florida. Lives in Florida, so he had to fly up to near where we're going to be shooting, and then had to go into uh, quarantine for two days and uh, take a test. In fact, I had to take a test yesterday. I have to take a test once a week during prep and then three times a week while we're shooting. And I'm sure you guys have seen all the various protocols that the Producers Guild has put together. Well, Bill Carraro is one of those. I think it's called Safe Way Forward or something like that. I'm not quite sure. He's, he's been part of putting, the, putting that together. And, you know, it's, it's a really... Delicate thing. I mean, we're going into battle, in and in in, in there's a sniper out there named named Coronavirus, and anybody could go down at any time. And you 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 guys report all the time that this show in Vancouver just shut down, this movie in London just shut down, and these others are are continuing to go forward. And so we're helping to we're hoping to learn as as the protocols evolve that by the time we start shooting in late January how to be as safe as possible for everyone. Nobody needs to get sick to do a TV show. Nobody gets needs to get really sick to do a TV show. Uh, that's all it is, is a television show.
1: Yeah, I mean, and not to sound, you know, or to make light of this at all, but, you know, Dexter Morgan as a character was always with the face shield. So, I mean, at least you have that going for it.
3: Yeah, well, that, yeah, Dexter Morgan has his PPE, you know, but, uh, the, 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 <laughs> but one of the things they are talking about now is... Um, sewing the microphones into the, into the wardrobe so that you don't, So that, that's one less person that have to, has to touch the actor. The actor is the most vulnerable because yeah. the actors get touched all the time. Hair, makeup, other actors. We may have to adjust the script depending on where the outbreak is and what's going on. You know, how do you shoot a love scene? How do you shoot a church filled with 300 people? I mean one one thing that's interesting, although um it's not going to happen on this show, but one thing that people are doing is if there's a love scene, they will often use the person's spouse as the body double
1: a practice started on soap operas, yeah oh well, did it really? yeah soap resumed production first before anyone else did
3: yeah, so again, we're gonna feel our way along. I'm going to follow bill's good Bill Carraro's good guidance and the protocols set up by. Um, the, the various committees that are in charge of that.
1: I do want to, um, you know, circle back to one last plot detail, and, and you may or may not have an answer for this one, but, you know, so much of Dexter as a series explored the relationship between Dexter Morgan and his father. Dexter Morgan now has a son, Harrison. How much is that of that are, is something that you're looking at as part of, of this quote-unquote final season?
3: Can't go there.
0: Sorry.
1: I had to try.
0: And just as a last question, with Dexter coming back, looking over your resume from 40 plus years in television, do you have another show from your past that you think is ready for a revival? And specifically, I'm saying, when is it going to be time for Parker Lewis Still Can't Lose?
3: It's so, yes, funny. It's so funny you said that. We tried to, Lon Diamond and I, who created the, we created the show together, tried to reboot it and um, couldn't get any interest because basically— the um, all the executives weren't around when that show was made. The show was 26 years ago. So we we really tried. I would love to re, to remake that show. And we, we, you know, we had an idea where Parker was now the principal of the school. Um, and um, some of the other characters were, were there as well, but uh, couldn't sell it. That, and that's what happens.
0: I'm just saying you have to find executives who are basically my age, because if you find that executive, then they watched that show growing up. That's the person you have to be finding
3: <laughs> well, the, the, the problem is that I don't own the show, so uh, who who does own that Sony Sony
1: yeah, well, they're rebooting everything right now anyway, so you never say never. maybe maybe if they ever get their own streaming service that that isn't whatever the heck crackle is.
3: yeah, I mean that, that'd be amazing i I'd, I would love for peacock to to buy suddenly Susan, you know to to <laughs> just for, to fill out their content, not a reboot just they've got a hundred episodes of it sitting there.
1: Oh, interesting. Well, Clyde, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great to see you. And and, um, obviously, no one, our our listeners can't see you, but you're sitting here doing this over Google Hangout wearing a Dexter hat. And it's just, it's given me life. Thank you so much.
3: You're welcome. Take out that 40 years in show business reference, would you?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dexter will return to Showtime for 10 new episodes in 2021.
2: You know how to book flights and hotels. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.
4: Number four.
1: Up next, it's time for our spotlight
0: segment. Instead of a showrunner, this week we're talking to Emmy-winning multi-hyphenate America Ferrera. The Ugly Betty and Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants star wraps up a five-plus season run as Amy Sosa on NBC's Superstore early this fall. Uh, Ferrera recently helped launch the Latina lifestyle community She Se Puede and is part of the advocacy campaign encouraging Latinx voter registration. Welcome to the podcast, America.
4: Thanks for having
0: me.
1: Getting started, you know, as the world ground to a halt in March. You were in a unique position because you were on the verge of departing Superstore, but then obviously that didn't happen. Obviously, I can't imagine that was you know your your most immediate concern in a, in the global pandemic. But when did you kind of begin to have conversations about making sure that Amy got the send off that she deserved?
4: Yeah, I mean, that was pretty sudden. Um, truthfully, we, you know, we we obviously were aware of COVID and how it was uh, progressing um, through early, you know, February and March. Um, but, you know, we didn't really hear about a shutdown till it was like, Time to shut down. <laughs> we yeah. didn't get a whole lot of heads up, uh, and we didn't know how how far we we'd be able to get in the season before they shut us down. I was certainly gearing up to to say my goodbyes, which of course is a is an emotional roller coaster. And I was sort of in denial, um, not letting people say goodbye to me or talk to me about it. I'm like, no, 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 no we'll do that later. Like we'll we'll, we'll have. I, We'll limit it to the last week. Then you guys can, we can talk about it and we can all cry and, and say goodbyes. Um, so I was sort of just like uh, pushing it off to the last minute. And then we got through the penultimate episode of the season, the second to last. And, and, um, and, uh, then we got shut down, um, which was crazy because we had originally started talking about sending Amy off early, you know, early January, you know, how we were gonna end things for for her at the store. And um and and it was it was meant to be a buildup. So the end, you know, the penultimate episode was sort of a to be continued. And um and then it ended up being our last episode of the season, which kind of worked. I mean, you know, and then I think for me it was actually there was a bit of a silver lining, which was that Was that I got to come back and be a part of season six, you know, in a a small, short way. Um, And it added an episode to Amy's goodbye, which means I made it to episode one hundred. I was really bummed about making it to 99 and then being gone. Um, so I did get my last episode. Amy's last episode was episode 100 of Superstore.
1: But how did the, you know, the, the exit and then obviously coming back and then adding an episode to it all, how did that change what her ultimate ending is? Uh, you know, did it affect that? did the storyline
4: change in her farewell change? It did change it. Yeah, it absolutely did change it. I mean, our first episode back this season sort of catches us up. And because Superstore is, you know, has always sort of, you know, not shied away from real life issues, it only felt so natural for us to like, deal with the reality of covid and deal with the reality of the shutdown and what that would have done to Amy's departure and you know so it was kind of great to be able to come back and use that first episode to to catch to catch us up in the world of Cloud 9 in the world of covid and then the next episode is Amy's last episode so it definitely changed and shifted what that goodbye looks like. Um, there, there's a whole storyline that was started in the in what ended up being the last episode that had to just get completely scrapped. Cheyenne and Mateo are planning this like ridiculously <laughs> massive, huge birthday party for hers that they end up sort of like um, fire. What is that fire? Firefest? Is that what it was called? What was it called?
0: Yeah. Fire festival.
4: They start like fire festivaling it and like creating a thing that, you know, people buy tickets to, but you know, they're going to have on like the loading dock at cloud nine. Um, and it was going to be this huge like festival, but then of course, you know, we couldn't shoot with, um, so many background, you know, we, we wanted to be safe and smart about the crowds and so ultimately they ended up just like scrapping having to scrap that whole storyline and filling out the episode with with other things in terms of Amy's like the journey for Amy and Jonah specifically for the end I don't think the sentiment of it really changed like it all all this reasoning all the all the kind of plot reasons for for her departure. And and I think it's safe to assume people understand that Jonah's staying on the show. Um, Those things all more or less stayed the same. The episode, the goodbye episode had to shift a bit a few times because of because of uh, the covid of it all.
0: Well, you've directed on the show. You you've been a producer with the show. When you're in this interesting position that you're in, where you're kind of half out the door, two thirds out the door. How much are they kind of asking for your input still as they're figuring out how to get you all the way out of the door?
4: I was involved right up to the end. I mean, even, you know, we're, we're editing uh, Amy's finale episode and I'm watching cuts and giving my feedback. And, um, you know, uh, it's a real family. You know, I, I've never had such a, uh, a grown-up breakup With it, with it, with a show before or a job, I don't even really want to call it a breakup. It's sort of like a conscious uncoupling, um, (laughs) of like, I just had the most amazing five years on this show and I love my Superstore family Um, I love our writers. I love our showrunners. I love our cast. I love our crew. It it was just the most wonderful five years where I did get to direct and I got to, uh, be the executive producer that I wanted to be. And, um, I got to have these wonderful collaborative partnerships with, with everyone. And, and there was a lot of trust and, and just, I think respect built with the team and, And, and it's just sort of like, it. it, I'm ready, like it's time I'm ready to move on to the next chapter of my, of my creative life. And, um, and, and so what was great about that to answer your question is that it never felt like I was being kicked out the door, or at least they were very good at hiding it. If they were ready for me to get out, they were, they were being (laughs) kind about it, but the COVID of it all did sort of make it like a long, protracted goodbye that was just by the end, super anticlimactic. Like by the time you've done your third last table read, no one is really that sad about you leaving. And, you know, I mean, how many like goodbye speeches can you make, you know, that, that people um, care about what was it, what was, what was funny and heartbreaking at the same time was that the day we did get shut down, what production got shut down for quarantine, I was shooting a scene um, with no regulars in it it was me and all like guest stars and day players and then found out that morning that that was going to be our last day on set and I didn't know like what that meant for Amy's storyline or if I was coming back and I just like when they called rap I was like I can't believe that my potentially my last day on my five-year you know job is going to be with like without any of my cast members around. Um, so that was a little bit heartbreaking. So I was glad to be able to come back and then have like a proper uh, goodbye with, with my cast and crew.
0: Well, we're still in sort of the early part of these initial stories about what covid production is is like. And I'm finding all of these stories to be kind of fascinating and vaguely terrifying. And I'm curious just what your experiences were with the mixture of being back, being back on the job, but also having to deal with the new normal, whatever it is.
1: Yeah, I, I actually drive by um the set. I see the cloud nine over there when I when I go over the Cuenca Pass and here in LA and and I notice there's all these like pop up tents, you know, in the parking lot. And it's so there's things that weren't there before when you guys were in production and obviously how different everything must seem now.
4: Yeah, those are the COVID rapid testing sites that everybody has to go to every morning. Um yeah, there was definitely a little bit of fear and hesitation about the unknown, you know, about going from you know, quarantine to being on a set with lots and lots and lots of people. I think we were all a little nervous about it, but, but, but it's been handled really well and really responsibly and every precaution you can imagine being taken to keep everybody safe. And, um, you know, I'm really, especially for our crew members, people got to work, you know, people got to get back to work. And I felt, and, and I think to the extent that, we can do things safely and responsibly and really out of respect for the risks that everybody's taking on. I think it's a good thing that things are are coming back slowly and and again, responsibly. Um, I think, you know, what was so interesting was that our first day back at 6 a.m., everybody was just sort of looking at each other like, whoa, this is so crazy. Like, everyone's in masks and face shields. We can't touch each other. There's no, you know, there's no craft service. There's no food. We're all starving. Like, um, you know, you, you can't hug anybody. You know, nobody's kids are coming to visit on the set or even writers visiting the set because they weren't taking, um, you know, they weren't letting anybody on set who didn't need to be there. But what was so crazy is that like by Wednesday of that first week, it felt like the new normal. You know, I think that's the thing that you realize in these instances is like, it's our, it's a great feature of humanity. And also, probably our biggest like downfall is just how adaptable we are. You know, that something that feels so weird and so foreign, like it doesn't take long for it to just be like, yeah, this is, this is how we do it. And, um, and yeah. But I mean, when I, when I finished my two episodes and left, it had already started to feel, Like people were, you know, it wasn't as scary and it just started feeling like the new normal.
1: You know, we had uh, a prolific showrunner, Alex Kurtzman, on our show last week who talked about the astronomical added costs that come with filming a show during COVID. From an actor standpoint, can you talk a little bit about the time? difference that it makes when it comes like when you come to set like how different the days feel are they longer are, is it you know how much longer does it take to film one scene versus you know in, in the before as we're calling it
4: well the hours are more or less the same especially for our show because we never really shot terribly long hours I have been on shows where we shoot terribly long hours but super Short was always a really decent uh schedule um I know that there are I think different productions are setting different limits to shooting because of all of the added protocols. Um, I think we're only shooting ten out like we can only shoot ten hours a day. But like part of that is that where our calls are five in the morning because you have to be on set doing a COVID test and you know, waiting for the the results of that COVID test and not just you, every background you know, actor, Everybody on set, everyone in the crew um, has to show up early to get a COVID test, to get a negative result and then get the day started. So the hours themselves aren't longer. They added a day to each episode. So where we used to shoot episodes in five days, we now shoot episodes in six days. It slows things down. But, you know, we're we're a season six show. We're a well-oiled machine. And also it's kind of a dream. It's kind of the best case scenario of a show for this because every episode is a bottle episode. Every episode we're just in the store. And if we're not in the store, then we're outside the store on the other side of the lot. So, you know, we didn't have to give up a lot by way of production value, to be able to shoot our show. But there's so many shows that like, I can't even imagine what that means for them. And especially new shows where like casts are trying to build chemistry and you're trying to get used to new directors or even just like a new hair and makeup team and wardrobe and figuring all of that out. Like I can imagine that it's a lot more complicated for new shows than it is for a, a show coming back to its sixth season with largely the same cast and crew throughout.
0: Now, you you mentioned that obviously COVID is going to be worked into the plot line this season. How how much is that kind of where we pick up? You know, it it's obviously come to dominate all of our lives entirely. So does it dominate the first couple episodes as well?
4: It dominates episode one, for sure. Episode one is a little bit the catch up. You know, you you sort of start where we left off, but then like speed through To present day of like what all of the different markers of like, oh, we're going to be out of this in like a couple weeks and then cut to obviously October. Um, uh, so, so yeah, the first episode really, um, plants us firmly in the reality of like 2020. And then from there on, it's sort of in the background and then we get back into the, to the character's uh, journeys and, and just our regular show.
1: I mean, you know, just from, from my point of view, I mean, I've, I know when I go to, you know, when I go grocery shopping or I run, run to Target or something, you know, you, you see the employees of these stores and there's just an instant gratitude, you know, of just, and, for me, I, I think about putting myself in their shoes and how scary and terrifying it must be, To you know, especially when everyone was getting the Clorox wipes and wiping down your groceries and anything that you bought. You know what I mean? Like there was that, you know, when, when no one understood anything about the virus. And obviously we we're still learning a lot about it. But how much of that is going to be incorporated into the show? Like, will everyone at the store be wearing masks and face shields when they're when they're at work and gloves and things like that.
4: Well, if you see the poster for the new season, you know, if that's any indication that uh, the show's definitely not shying away from the reality of it. Um, and while every episode is not going to be focused on COVID and dealing with COVID, it will like everything else be you know, very fertile territory for for the comedy, you know, the, the kind of special brand of comedy that Superstore has always, uh, played with. And yeah, I mean, for, for our, for our workers to be big box store workers in the midst of a pandemic, it it couldn't be more rife with, um, with material, you know? Um, so yes, we, we, we address, you know, that people who work in Targets are now, frontline heroes and just the, the kind of, um, the reality, but also the comedy of that, of like, um, you know, you're our essential workers and also we still can't afford to give you healthcare in the midst of a pandemic, you know, like you're our heroes, but when it comes to finding PPE, you're on your own, you know? Um, so it's, it, it is really, uh, it fertile territory for, for, for Superstore and its particular brand of comedy.
0: Well so many shows kind of start off with the potential where everyone's like yeah and this is a venue that allows us to talk about real world issues but then by the time they get to a certain point it's like well we'd rather deal with the the love story between the characters or the wacky sidekicks but you guys have very consistently managed to make healthcare immigration blue collar worker issues sort of front and center to the comedy how hard has it felt to keep the focus actually on those issues and to, to know you can both do those things, but also be funny while doing them.
4: Yeah. I mean, I think it's a, it, it speaks to the talent of the writers. You know, I think, um, we've had incredible writers throughout who, who have really honed in on, on the way to do it. That feels right to the show, you know, and, um, and I think it's always a balance. I mean, We definitely have episodes where we're more focused on, on, you know, an issue like when we all go on strike or, you know, when Mateo is captured by ice or, you know, even the maternity leave episode where, where, uh, Amy has to come back to work less than 48 hours after giving birth. Um, but even, you know, so there are episodes where we really put those issues front and center and other episodes where, you know, we're just playing stupid, like, games because we're locked in the store. But even when we do focus on those issues, I think the strength of the show is that is that it has always, it doesn't become a different show. It doesn't become on a very special episode of Superstore. It's, it's sort of, um, it's just part and parcel of the world that Justin and the writers created, which is, you know... Yes, there are parts of this world that are very heightened, but these are everyday people who live in the actual world that the audience lives in too.
0: Now, changing gears a little, you're also executive producer and a frequent director on Netflix's Hentified. Um, How has the second season of that show, which I believe was picked up uh, in May, like during all of this, how has that been impacted by all of this?
4: Yeah, well, um, they're writing the season now and we are meant to be in production early 2021 but we'll see you know we'll see what what things look like then and and um you know hope fingers crossed that we can actually go into production and and make the second season at that time but i you know it hasn't been impacted i think greatly just because Netflix and streaming and cable schedules are, you know, very different and can often have big lags in between seasons or, you know, you take you get months to write every script before you have to go into production. So in a way, you know, the streaming cable way of of doing it, um, you know, lends itself to to be able to keep moving Um, and, and you're not on the schedule where it's like, well, if you want to premiere in the fall, you got to start, you know, you got to start now, you know, but the writer's room is virtual. They're in a zoom room and, um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of pre-production is going to be virtual as well and will only be, you know, in real life when, when we absolutely need to be in real life.
1: Speaking of Netflix, you know, that the streamers in, in the midst of some major executive changes, obviously, Cindy Holland leaving is well, it, it changes the fabric of being at Netflix. Um, and then obviously, you know, last late last week, Channing Dungie departed. Um, have you heard from from the new head of originals, Bella Bahara yet? Or have you has there been any discussion about the future of your show? I know there's a lot of, of moving pieces going on over there right now.
4: Yeah, no, luckily, we've not been um, told that, you know, luckily well, they've not canceled us, um, in retrospect. Uh, no, I have not heard personally from Bella. I know Bella from her days at Universal. She was at Universal when, when Superstore, when, when we made the pilot, uh, I know Bella, I like Bella, but yeah, I think every, every major network and studio is undergoing some sort of massive reorg and, um, big changes everywhere. So you know, I think we all just sort of need to be buckled in and see how, you know, how our creative um, uh, plans are are impacted. I, I found it so funny in the beginning of the quarantine, how like, pitches were still going and they were still buying projects. And I'm like, wait, what world are we living in? Like, why are we just moving on as if everything's going to be normal? Like, of course this changes everything. You know, you have a whole season of broadcast pilots that didn't get made. What are you going to do with those pilots? You know, or was it like, like I feel so sorry for the writers who like finally got their pilots, you know, picked up, only to not get to make them or to be sidelined to next year. But what does that mean for next year's development? And what does that mean? You know, I, I think that we're only—I don't—I I think we're only beginning to to see the impact of of what the the shutdown will have on the industry. And I think that that all of that to say that it feels like everywhere there are shakeups that are shifting the creative plans. Um, so, you know, we never take anything for granted, but for now we're, we're trudging along and hoping that we, you know, that we get to, um, keep making our show.
1: Yeah. you know. And as a prolific producer yourself, I, I believe you think, I think you still have an overall deal with universal t- uh, TV, right?
4: I'm no longer in a studio. No I'm on my own. Okay. Yeah. Okay, so that's so as
1: a producer now and now that you have the ability to sell anywhere, not just within the universal fold, but beyond, you know, how has the pandemic changed the and and currently the state of the world that we're living in, obviously, you know, looking at at the Black Lives Matter movement and the the industry's push to continue to to gain in in terms of inclusion, both on on screen and behind the screen, uh, behind the scenes. How has that changed the kind of stories that, that you're looking to tell and the kind of voices that you're looking to work with?
4: Well, it hasn't changed the stories I'm looking to tell at all. I think what it has changed is sort of the appetite and the opportunities that exist for, for those stories to be told. Stories about, um, often underrepresented communities and people. Um, and, and really, you know, as a producer, so much of my mission is working with new voices, you know, y- young creative people who are not often the ones to to have doors open for them um, and get their stories told uh, in our industry. I think that, you know, what's interesting is it's a little bit of a dichotomy. It's like socially everything that's happening is is really waking individuals up to the the reason and the purpose for diversified storytelling. Um, And yet what's happening economically and what's happening to the industry is what tends to, to make people more risk adverse. And for whatever reason, you know, telling stories about Latinos or Black people or any minority or giving you know, New Voice is a shot is still considered a risk. And so I'm curious as a producer to see what it means um practically, you know, whether or not studios are going to be making decisions that are based on, you know, the progress we're making socially and and culturally, or if it's going to be more limited by the fears and the obstacles of of the economy and how the industry is changing and and sort of having to uh, react to current circumstances.
0: Well, these past couple of years, you've um, been taking advantage and pushing and making these opportunities for yourself as a producer and as a director. Where does at this moment acting rank on the list of things that you find professionally gratifying?
4: That's a great question. Um, you know, it's always changing and and I and I don't I, I kind of have stopped sort of thinking about my life and my work in the world in buckets, you know, like this is the acting bucket and this is the activist bucket and this is the directing bucket. I think, you know, they're all informed by the same thing, which is where do I have an opportunity? To, to add value and to tell a story that matters to me, where I feel like I'm using my talents um, in an additive way and, 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 and in a way that's creatively fulfilling to me. So I think the question about, you know, what are my priorities as an actor, I want to be able to act in things that are really exciting. You know, if I'm going to act in something, uh, I want it to be an opportunity to, um, to expand and to be challenged and to do something, uh, that I haven't yet, you know, had the opportunity to do, um, or just to do something that seems really fun, uh, or really important. Um, so I'm not in any way closing any doors and, the acting side of things. I just, it's just exciting for me as a, as a creative person, as a storyteller, as a filmmaker, to, 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 to have the freedom and the ability to kind of be inspired and excited about something as a producer and go pursue that, you know, until something's exciting and, and inspiring about a, a, a chance to direct and then go do that. And then, you know, certainly whenever the opportunities come along that are really exciting and challenging as an actor, or even just fun, uh, you know, I feel really grateful that, that I, that I have the opportunity to do that when it feels right to do that.
1: You know, um, and obviously now you're leaving broadcast, which is in the TV industry for actors and for writers and producers doing a broadcast TV show is, is by far the most grueling thing you can do. 22 episodes, 18 to 22 episodes a season, the production schedule, even going from five to six days, you know, for one episode There it's, it's incredibly taxing. So given your background, obviously with ugly Betty and now superstore and so much other stuff, do you ever see yourself going back to that kind of a schedule again?
4: I don't know. I, I mean, I would never say never ugly Betty was, I feel like completely unsustainable. I don't know that I could ever do anything like that again. I mean, we, there were day, and I don't even know if people work like that anymore. I'm sure there are some people, but you know, when you're doing 20 hour days, you know, uh, as the title character of a one hour drama, that's like not a life, you know, and it's, it's when you're 21 years old and you have no one and nothing to be responsible to but yourself, like, great, go for it. But as a, as a mother of two children, you know, with a family and other interests, um, it, it, it certainly, uh, I, I, it's not likely, but at the same time, you know, uh, I, who knows, um, uh, I think it's really exciting and interesting as a creative person to watch what, you know, what someone like Reese Witherspoon is doing as a producer, as as an actress, creating opportunities for herself to produce and also to act and not just like in one show at a time. I mean, how many shows does she act in at once? Um, and and I, you know, uh we should all be so lucky to have the opportunity to 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 get to act Um that, that much, uh, in, in things that are exciting and that we're creatively inspired by, but it does feel like the landscape is shifting where you don't have to commit your entire life to just the one show, you know, I, I there is freedom in being able to do 10 episodes of a limited series over here and then getting to jump to do, you know, uh, you know, a. Uh, multiple seasons of, of a eight episode season on this platform. Like that's, there are pros and cons, but I think that, um, there's more flexibility now to not have it just look like the kind of grueling day in, day out, um, schedule of a, of a broadcast, uh, kind of, you know, machine.
0: Now you mentioned that you don't really view your life as being in buckets, but I still want to talk a little bit about the political bucket uh, because you've always been very active and uh, on the political scene. And I think with the election less than a month away, many people are finding themselves angry and frustrated in so many different directions at once that it can be stymieing. So how have you been focusing your attentions with November only a few weeks away?
4: That's a really good question. You know, surprisingly, I was definitely there have been moments where I have felt like I was drowning in the the gloom and the doom and the fear and the anger and just this sense of impending doom (laughs) that that um, seems to be uh, everywhere you look. And I feel like I. I had a moment where I realized I don't, I can't be useful from this place. Like I can't be helpful when I'm bogged down and handicapped by, by how dark everything feels right now. I, I need to find a way to center joy and happiness on a day-to-day basis. And whether that means like doing a dance party with my son or, you know, watching snails or jumping in the pool in between zoom calls or whatever, whatever little moment reminds me that there is happiness and joy to be had on a day-to-day basis. Um, um, I, I just felt like I, I couldn't, I, I, it wasn't sustainable to just be driven by anger and fear. And what's so interesting is from that place of centering joy, I'm actually able to do so much more, like we think that fear and anger is the great catalyzer. I actually think that joy and love is the great catalyzer because when you remember what you're doing it for and not just what you're doing it against, it can be such an energizer and 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 i and I'm just speaking from my own personal experience of of this last month we're twenty days away from this election and and I made a decision a couple of weeks ago to to center um, joy in my day and in my activism. And I'm able to do so much more because it's coming from a place of of hope and a place of of. Of opportunity, of what can I do with my voice, with my platform? Who can I reach? Who can I inform? Who can I have conversations with um, to empower them and to give them a glimmer of empowerment in a time that feels so disempowering where there's so many unknowns? Um, and and I and I've been surprised. I've been surprised of just what it feels like on a day to day basis to show up in this moment, um, not as an activist just as a person in this world, just as a person in this country. And, you know, I think we all have a part to play in that, whether, you know, what we know is that you are the best person to inform your mother, sister, brother, neighbor, friend about voting and what they need to get out and vote. More than America Ferrera or, you know, Kerry Washington or Leonardo DiCaprio. Like what we actually know is, Your voice saying to your mother, what's your plan to vote? When are you going to vote? How are you going to, what do you need to know to vote? Have you cast your ballot? That is exponentially more effective. And, And so we all have power in this moment. We all have power to use our voices, to reach out to our networks, to everyone we know, and make sure that they have what they need to participate. Because, you know, the way I see it is, Everything hinges on this. Our ability to even um, have work to come back to, our ability to send our children to school to be socialized and educated, like there, there is nothing that could be more essential and more important than getting this right and defending our democracy in this time if we all want to get back to making TV and binging on Netflix, you know?
0: Well I know you've been working with some uh voting advocacy initiatives recently and I was just wondering if the, if you had any you wanted to plug any resources you wanted to plug <laughs>
4: You know, I, I launched a platform a little over a month ago um, with a, a group of incredible founders, Eva Longoria being one of them, and uh, a group of 10 Latina women from entertainment, business, technology, organizing, politics. And we launched this platform called She Se Puede, which um, which is a space in a community for Latinas to change the narrative around us, to tell our own stories, um, creatively and otherwise, to talk about, you know, everything from like our workplace to our workouts, to, to our mental health and our, you know, creative artistic contributions. Um, and, and very importantly, also our civic responsibilities and our, and the power that lies within the Latina community to to shape um, the the future of this country. Um, So that is a little bit, you know, everything that we've talked about wrapped up into one, which is, you know, whether we're talking about politics or medicine or science or health, or TV, what we're always doing is telling stories and consuming stories about who we are. That is what everybody is doing all of the time. And um in, or, in order for us to see ourselves, Latinas, show up with the full force of their power, civically, politically, we need to be able to see ourselves reflected in culture. And we need to have a sense and a belief in what our actual um, power is and what our actual contributions are. So, so um, you know, it's a nonpartisan organization um, that goes well beyond any party or any one given election. It's about building real power through storytelling and through building community.
1: I I love that. I love that so much. Um, Well, we do like to end all of our episodes uh, with the same, all of our interviews with the same question. What are you watching and enjoying? What have you been watching and enjoying during the pandemic and of late? There's so much content still, thankfully.
4: This is such a mean question to ask a brand new mother of two children, because the truth is, is like diddly squat. Like that's what I'm watching. I'm watching like... What am I watching? Oh my God. Well, let me just tell you what the last thing I managed to watch, like a piece of an interview Nancy Pelosi did yesterday. Um, so how's that for great TV? I got to watch half of a documentary that I'm in called not done, which is a, which is premiering soon. Yeah. I'm not the person you want to ask. And I'm also like, so I have so much rage at everyone who like got to spend their quarantine, like what catching up on Netflix, because you don't get to do that when you have a brand new baby and a two year old. (laughs) Well, America, thank you so much for joining us
1: this week. We really appreciate you taking your time out of your busy schedule.
4: Thank you. Thank you both so much. It, It was wonderful to talk to you.
1: The sixth season of Superstore premieres October 29th on NBC.
0: Number five.
1: As usual, we wrap things up with the critics corner. This week's major new launches include Jeff Loeb's final Marvel TV drama Hellstrom on Hulu, Grand Army on Netflix, the West Wing reunion special on HBO Max, David Burns' American Utopia on HBO proper, and the returns of several broadcast scripted and unscripted offerings. Dan, what you got?
0: Well, personally, I'm going to Broadway this weekend uh, because our great film and theater critic uh, David Rooney did reviews of did reviews of David Burns American Utopia on HBO, which is a Spike Lee directed adaptation of his stage show. And then he did a theater review of the very, very well-received What the Constitution Means to Me, which is premiering its own film stage version on Amazon this week. So those are things I'm watching. Uh, things you should watch, well, The weekend might not necessarily be full of things that you should actually watch. For example, Hulu is premiering Hellstrom, which at one point was known as Marvel's Hellstrom, but somehow the marbles disappeared. Probably because it has no particular relationship to the Marvel comic character and because Jeff Loeb is out at Marvel TV and they're changing. And there the is entire, no Marvel TV anymore. <laughs> exactly. And they're changing the entire administration. So Hulu basically has, in this particular case, a somewhat orphaned TV show that is not very good. It is. So what a, you're
1: saying is it's not all connected, Dan?
0: Uh, well, it's connected to. Eventual cancellation, I would assume. Uh, oh, I burn. Don't, whatever. It's just not very <laughs> good. It's, it's a, it's been, if you go online, you can see how the original character of, uh, Damon Hellstrom and his sister Santana, Anna here, uh, look in the comics. They look nothing like that. Nothing in their world looks anything like the comic connection. Basically, it's been reconceived as a, color drained, overly dark exorcism drama of the type that TV has had like 20 in the past five years. And they even acknowledge multiple times in the first five episodes how much TV and movies have been doing exorcism stuff. And yet they do absolutely nothing new or interesting with it. There are some okay performances, uh, kind of, if you set your bar low, like Elizabeth Marvel, who has been a great character actress for a long time and has a very good name for a Marvel TV show. She plays the main character's mother, who and she's occupied by a demon in some way, and she gives a very committed performance. You've just seen this performance. Sometimes she's levitating. Sometimes she talks with a funny, scary, dark voice. You've seen it before. It's not exciting or different. It's just reasonably well played uh, leading man. Tom Austin is an utter bore and the character that he's been written is an utter bore uh, as his sister, Anna Sydney lemon. She's the, uh, Jack lemon's granddaughter. Uh, she's, she's better. She's interesting. She's watchable, but I I've seen five episodes um, because that was all that Hulu sent out. And there is no chance I'm finishing this because I can't imagine that. <laughs> I can't imagine it's going to get a second season and I can't imagine it gets any better. Uh, over on Netflix, some people I think will definitely like Grand Army, which is, I would say it's kind of a hybrid of Degrassi and Euphoria. Um, it's a very self-serious but committedly interested drama about high school students and and all of their travails, ranging from drugs to inappropriate sexual relationships to... Fear of violence in the classroom. It's all it's all very, very serious. And it's got a young cast, uh, including uh, Odessa Azayan, who's Pamela Adlon's uh, daughter. And she's great. Uh, She's been good in things before. And really, I would say the entire cast is very, very good. I've watched four episodes of this one as well, because our colleague Ingu reviewed it. And There's no question that it's going all in on the thing that it is. I just found myself, I don't know, exhausted by it. And probably that is at least somewhat because I am old or too old or whatever. It's exhausting. It's exhaustingly self-serious. It's very well acted and sometimes moves decently. So things to keep in mind. And if you are not like me and you didn't stay up until past midnight on the Pacific coast to watch the West Wing reunion special slash voting advocacy campaign, it's pretty good. Uh, They basically just straight up restage the Hartsfield landing episode from the third season of West Wing, uh, an episode that basically concludes, spoiler alert, with Josh Lyman just realizing the importance of voting. So you know what it is. There are guest stars in the commercial breaks, including Michelle Obama, Bill Clinton, Lynn manuel Miranda, and basically all they want to tell you is vote. Um, some of it is pretending to be nonpartisan. Other parts, it's pretty left-leaning. But what would you expect from a Aaron Sorkin-produced West Wing reunion? Uh, and Sterling K. Brown, who's the only main character in this, who is new because he replaces the late, great John Spencer as Leo McGarity, um, He's really good. And I I would pay money to watch him read Aaron Sorkin dialogue. Uh, we've talked about how the A Few Good Men live production is basically dead at NBC. But if they ever decide they want to start that up again, um, I would take him as either Kathy or Jessup in a A Few Good Men reboot, either one, hell, both, you know, film him talking to himself. He's so good that he's always fun to watch. I'm telling you, imagine him as either Kathy or Jessup in A Few Good Men and you'll want this now, too, because he's that good. Um, Yeah. So that's that's TV. But but stay tuned. Next week, we've got a show that I'm really looking forward to recommending this week. Everything's tepid, Leslie.
1: Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations on what to watch or what to skip, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter.
0: And that feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you for listening to TV's top five, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little review-y thing. We, We have to thank all of you for coming through in recent weeks. We we truly, truly appreciate all of your support. Um, Yeah, it it means a lot to us. It means a lot to the people above us. It means a lot to the future of the podcast. So we do appreciate that. Um, As always, if you have questions, comments, concerns, come say hi to us on the Twitter. And if you've got questions you want us to actually answer on the podcast, email us at tvstop5 at THR.com. That's TV's Top 5, the number 5, at THR.com. Until next week, Leslie.
1: Until next week, Dan. Go vote, everybody.